been talking all year long about how important it is to be reading your Bible in the morning and how important it is to be praying and why it's so important to be doing this and how your time alone with the Lord um, prepares your heart for your home and it prepares your heart for ministry, prepares your heart for interactions with the saved and the lost in your lives. We've talked about a whole bunch of different ways to, to assist your prayer life, to motivate your prayer life and everything else. Um, what we're going to look at in Psalm 99 is the fundamental reason why you sit down with the Lord. Whenever you sit down with him, the fundamental reason why you do this. Um, this is written from a Jewish perspective, so you need to put yourself in the sandals of the Old Testament Jew. I'm going to read several verses at the front. I'm going to read a couple verses at the end. And what I hope we get as the takeaway from this is why you meet with the Lord. And uh, the takeaway is, first and foremost, is that he's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your praise because he's holy. Because he's holy, he's worthy, worthy of your worship and praise. So let me read uh, verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 99. And then I'm going to jump down and read verses 8 and 9. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Yahweh is great in Zion, and he is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt Yahweh our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Drop down to verse 8. O Yahweh our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. Exalt Yahweh our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is Yahweh our God. So you'll see the word holy spread throughout this, this psalm. And at the end of the day, um, we, we want to sit down and we want to read our Bibles because we want to be thinking correctly about our jobs, we want to be thinking correctly about our responsibilities, and about our friendships, and about our living situation. We need to be informed rightly about our decisions. We need to be using biblical principles for all of that. But at the end of the day, the reason why we, we sit down with our Bibles and we spend time alone with God is because he's worthy of your worship. We see uh, at the beginning in verse 1 that he reigns. We sit down and we praise God and we worship God because he's over everything, which includes us. And he reigns, and he's enthroned. And so when somebody is enthroned, they're, they're sitting, they've seated themselves, and their work is complete. And this tells us that God is unchallenged in his position before us and over us as God. And so he's worthy of our worship because of that. He's great, and he's exalted in verse 2. Um, and the greatness that's being spoken of there is a greatness that's separate from and surpassing to any other greatness in the world. There are great people and this, that, and the other, but... But God's greatness is, is exceeding and excelling beyond any of ours. And so because of that, in verse 3, we're, we're, we're the ones who are, it's right for us to praise God's awesome name because he's holy. Verses 4 and 5 talk about things that, um, that God does, verse 4 in particular, that give us reason to worship him and that, that he's a just God. God loves justice. He loves meeting out justice. And he has established equity. And that equity is not in terms of, we would understand equity in terms of 
of how uh, everything is most evenly distributed, but equity there is, is the way God deals with people. He deals with people with equity and that he judges sin and that God executes justice and righteousness in Israel. And so the Old Testament Jew was looking at this and they were seeing that God actually does execute his justice and his righteousness. And so because of that, God is, is worthy of worship. And you see in verse 6 where the person should put themselves when they're, when they're addressing God. They should put themselves underneath God at his footstool below him. So, you know, we, we want to read our Bibles because we, we need to shepherd our hearts, and we always do. But at the end of the day, God is worthy of our worship. And what you'll find is, is when you are giving God the, the worship that he deserves, that is when you actually are shepherding your heart the most effectively because you're putting yourself in the position where we all belong, and that's underneath God. Um, and so when we're reading our Bibles and we're praying, we're, we're told in verse 8 that, that God hears us, and he, he hears our requests, and he answers our requests according to his plan and his purpose. We're actually praying in accord with his purposes that he's already set forth when we're meeting with him and we're worshiping him. And so because of that, um, that's, that's why we meet with the Lord. So what I want you guys to take into the summer um, as we're done meeting here after today is that God is worthy of your worship. Um, sit down with your Bibles with him in mind, first and foremost. And then the blessings are going to come to your own heart. And the blessings are going to come to your marriage if you're married. It's going to come to you and your household if you're living with roommates or whatever. And it's going to come to the ministry that you engage in here at this church or elsewhere. Um, but it starts with worshiping God because, because he's worthy of it. So I hope that's an encouragement to you guys today. Um, remember that when the next time you open your Bible is that he's worthy of your praise. Just, just take what you're reading and turn that around back in praise and thanksgiving to him because uh, he's so deserving of it. Make sure you have your worksheet. We're going to do uh, the last lesson of Build today, or last teaching. Um, and it's, it's all about hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible as you read and as you study. Um, so we're going to jump into that. But what I want to um, draw your attention to um, is kind of the bigger picture for just a moment of what we're trying to do with leadership development uh, of men and discipling of men in the church. Um, uh, you obviously know there's build, um, and many of you have um, done the next level or the next layer of discipleship that we offer men, and that is called the trust. And uh, SMED does that one. Um, spends time with men there. That one is about um, discipling men in two areas. Discipling men in the theology that the elders of Grace Bible Church have uh, and hold to. Uh, so SMED basically walks you through in a year um, a systematic theology course. Um, you, you would, that that's great. Um, there are some seminary classes that are a whole semester long on any one of those ologies, Christology, um, soteriology, and he may spend one, two, or three classes on those. And so it's, a, it's an overview, it's an introduction, um, but what we're looking for, the, the logic of what we're going um, for in this is build this to help you to become the right kind of man of character that you need to be. And when you are the right kind of man and character, then um, that's the kind of man you want to entrust theology to. Hence the, the name trust. 
that's from 2 Timothy 2 2. Entrust um, these things to faithful men. Build needs to, our hope is, it help us to become faithful men, men who are faithful to God in all the arenas of their life they need to be. And then you entrust to a faithful kind of man theology. Um, the, the church over the, um, in history is, is loaded with all of the devastating examples of men who were sharp theologically, but they were not faithful men. And a disaster happens when that takes place in a church. And so uh, Smed just spends time letting you know and talking through um, what the theology of this church is. The other um, area of discipleship that takes place is really just studying the Bible. How to study the Bible, study it with the um, um, ultimate end that you're going to teach it. And so every guy in the trust um, uh, picks a passage, and by the end of the year, you Smed walks you through a process of uh, working with an English text. You don't have to know Hebrew. You don't have to know Greek. You just have to be able to read English. Um, and he'll walk you, he'll hold your hand, he'll comfort you, he'll wipe your tears from your eyes. Um, and you will preach a message at the end of your year. In fact, they're getting ready to do that right at the end of the month, Dave. Um, they go on the retreat, and uh, you know, a half a dozen guys or so all preach 20-minute sermons to each other all weekend. It's a great time of fellowship. If you've ever done that, it's just it's really amazing. So um, the man who does... That, that the elders are looking at for the trust um, are the men who have done build well. By well, we mean good attendance. You, you did your homework well. You were thoughtful in your homework. You don't just throw down a one or two word answer, but you're thinking about it well, and you're beginning to show evidence of, you know, you're practicing these disciplines. We're not looking for perfection, or by any means, none of us are there. But um, that's what's next. So you can just kind of be praying about that. If you have an interest in the trust, you can let Scott know, you can let me know, you can let Smed know, and over the summer some emails will start going out about that. Okay? All right, in the meantime, let's jump into what we're talking about here. A lot of this is going to get put into actual practical steps in um, the trust, but let's pray first, shall we? Father, thank you for your word, Lord, that you would um, just reveal yourself to us is staggering. Uh, that should cause us to pause and just be amazed that you would take um, of yourself and reveal it to us. Lord, we know that in your Bible you have not told us everything about you. How could words um, and language convey everything that you are as the eternal um, great God that you are? But you have revealed to us what we need to know to be saved by you. And we're thankful for that, Lord, especially when we consider what our minds were like um, before you saved us. Um, Lord, they were broken and uh, rebellious towards you, and we could not think the kinds of thoughts that we must think about you. And so that you have revealed yourself and that we actually understand your words um, is really an amazing thing that should just cause us to pause right there and be overwhelmed and grateful and worshipful. Lord, would you please meet with us as we think carefully about how words and language work, and may we be careful men with your words, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. It might be uh, surprising for you to consider this, uh, but it actually 
uh, reading and understanding and uh, studying the Bible actually involves a lot of self-control. And that's what we're going to try to get across to you over and over and over today. Um, you, you've noticed this in your own time of reading God's Word, that there seem to be endless distractions and temptations that take your mind off in all kinds of different directions when all of a sudden you have to open your Bible and read it. Um, sometimes you, it, it happens in a, in a good way. You get distracted. You're on one page. You read something and you go, oh, oh, what was that? And you turn and next thing you know you're distracted but you're going to someplace else in the Bible. That can be a good thing. Um, other times you're just reading and the next thing you know you're thinking about work and you're thinking about the things that have got to go on the day or you're thinking about the bad conversation that you had that you have to do clean up on from the past. You're just endless distractions. Um, and when we're trying to figure out what a passage means and we come across something and it's a challenging thought in that verse, a lot of times what we do is we, we leave that those words right there and we run off in our own mind and we're just circling around chewing this what does that mean I think it means this does it mean that does it mean this and the next thing you know we've arrived someplace in our minds on the meaning of that passage and we left that page a long time ago um, self-control says I'm going to come back to here and not one of us would like anybody to do that with our words um, if you wrote a very sweet love letter to your, your bride and she, it was over a very specific situation that happened, perhaps a reconciliation in your relationship took place, a, um, a sweet for seeking of forgiveness, and you wrote her just this tender, tied to that moment letter to her of, of love. And somebody took that letter of love and as they read it, started reading, and something in, the, in one of the words you said triggered them to think of their favorite romantic comedy that they've watched year after year after year. And they just, they just took that, and they started talking about that, and, and began to take those ideas and almost seemed to put them into what you wrote. Um, it would be right for you at the end of wherever they got in their thinking. It would be right for you to say, um, could you please control yourself with my words? I mean, they're holding your letter that you wrote. And where they've arrived isn't anything tied to the situation that you were in with your wife. Those were, those were precious words that meant something uniquely between the two of you. And it would be right for you to say, control yourself with my words. We just need to extend to God the same courtesy. Okay, we don't want to do that kind of thing with God's word. Um, we need to control ourselves um, with his words. How do you do that? How do you control yourself with God's word? Um, you do that by putting some guidelines around you, some rules for interpreting it that will help to restrain you um, so that you don't quickly leave his words on the page that you're studying in order to get to other interesting ideas that are in your head. Um, the guidelines or the rules or principles that we're going to walk through here, we're going to give you 10 of them. We should probably give you 110 of them, um, but we're going to summarize it in about 10 ways. These are going to help you restrain yourself as you consider how great uh, God, our Savior's words, are to us. Now, one aim of this study, I'm going to give you um, two, two aims that are kind of um, parallel alongside aims. One is, is I want this to, in one sense, demystify 
the Bible's meaning, that it's not as mysterious of a process of getting to what the Bible means as maybe what you might think. It's easier to get to the meaning of the Bible than you think. So I, I want that to, to come across. At the same time, I want you to understand that it's a more sobering thing than maybe you think too. It's not as hard as you might think it is, and it's more serious than you think it might be. Okay, you're going to need to feel that tension always, anytime you're in the Bible. That this isn't listen. This is not a spy, a spy's communication where you need a decoder ring to figure it out. It's just not. These are words, and you use words. This is language, and you use language all the time. You have an intuitive way of understanding how it works. We're just going to draw attention to the intuitiveness of it. And you're going to go, oh, yeah, it's not as hard as I thought. I do this all the time with language. I, I have to interpret people's words all day long. They have to interpret mine. I'm just going to do that here now. It's that simple in one sense. And yet these aren't just anybody's words. These are God's words, and so we need to be sobered by that. The very first thing that you can do to help control yourself is, number one, prayerfully position yourself under the God of the Word. Now, uh, that next page, yeah, we just went through, see that blank page on page one? We just, like, blew through that. And, and Danny, you didn't write down very much. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have sat in the front row. <laughs> <laughs> it's my fault. All the guys... my <laughs> All the guys in the back are like really happy. Uh, um, but let's talk about number one first. Prayerfully position yourself under the God of the Word. How on earth is that even a part of interpretation? Listen, it's this. Um, what kind of interpreter do you want to be? That's the question you need to start with. When you're coming to study the Bible, you need to ask yourself, what kind of an interpreter am I going to be? Do I want to be? And the answer is you want to be a prayerful one, a worshipful one. You're not merely an academic doing an academic, you know, an academic work trying to get information. You're a worshiper who's meeting with the God of the Word, and you need to control your... I would not just assume that because you're a Christian and your Bible's open that that's going to happen, that you're already prayerful, you're already worshipful because I'm a Christian. Do not assume that. Um, discipline yourself to become that. Um, I'm not going to walk through the whole prayer. That's a prayer that was handed out to you in your notebook at the beginning of the year. It's in your notebook somewhere. Um, but I'll let you read through that um, prayer. You're basically trying to answer the question, okay, why am I here? When you wake up and you rub the sleep out of your eyes and you've got your cup of coffee and your Bible's open, you need to have a, a good answer to the question, why am I here? Why am I doing this? And... A prayer like this helps you to answer that. Uh, we just encourage you, you know, this, do not be slavish with that prayer that was given. It's, it's merely given as an example. Um, you need to write your own prayers out. It would be good to do that every day. Take a, take a moment and write a paragraph that's, and, and express, why, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Um, so in praying a prayer like this, you're disciplining yourself. You're reining yourself in. You're controlling yourself to be a prayerful, worshipful interpreter of the Word of God. Um, so what kind of interpreter do you want to be, want to be? That's where you want to start, number one, just by praying. Number two, expect a single coherent meaning. A single coherent meaning. 
Let me ask you this question. When was the last time you communicated either by email or a text or a Facebook post? When was the last time you communicated so as to not be understood? I'm going to use the, I'm going to type this text to my wife and I do not want her to understand what I'm saying. <laughs> Nobody ever does that on purpose. Now look, we're men, we seldom make sense, especially to our wives. But um, we don't communicate so as to not be understood. The whole point of language is so that I can be understood, so that you can be understood. Now let me um, expand on that. When was the last time um, you intended to communicate two equally valid coexisting meanings from the same set of words? So not only do you communicate expecting to be have a coherent message, but a single one with the set of words that you have. In other words, um, when was the last time you communicated so that one person hearing those words concluded one meaning, but another person validly concluded an entirely different meaning from the same words? When was the last time you communicated that? Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. We're broken, fallible, uh, uh, fallible communicators and broken, infallible listeners. Uh, people do come away with different ideas of what the one set of words, but when as an author using words did you communicate that way? Two different sets of meaning from one set of words, both of them equally valid. We don't do that. In, all, in other words, I'll even say this, you can't do that. And the reason that you can't do that is because language can't do that. Language cannot communicate two equally valid meanings from the same set of words. You just can't. Context demands there's one thing that was meant. You've never communicated two equally valid meanings with the same set of words. You just haven't. Um, and we can't do that. Um, language and communication are gifts from God to clearly communicate one meaning at a time, sentence by sentence. And we communicate in order to be understood in these ways. And so when people are talking to us, we're listening, expecting what? I'm going to understand the one thing that he said. Let's go to Isaiah 45, verse 18 and 19. Let me just show you a couple of verses. If that's true about language, guys that you can expect a single coherent meaning, then the Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood. Just like you mean to be understood, God, who is the perfect communicator, he intended his meaning to be understood. Okay, Isaiah 45, verse 18. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it, he established it and did not create it, a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited right here. I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place, see if you can come find me. But I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Um, the Lord expected the offspring of Jacob to understand him because his meaning and his words were not in secret. They were not unfindable. 
They have only ever been out in the plain sight of Israel. He communicated to Israel so that he could be understood. A coherent meaning is present. I'll say it again. The Bible is not a spy's communication intended to hide meaning. You don't need a decoder ring to get it. God communicated so as to be understood. You communicate so as to be understood. You see, it's not as difficult when you think of it that way. It's like, of course, we all, this way language works. Let's go to Deuteronomy 29. Let me show you a passage here. Deuteronomy 29 and 29. It's a great verse. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Um, God has not communicated everything he knows or that he has planned for man. Um, There are still some secret things that belong to him. Those secret things that belong to him are not in the Bible. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to know it. You don't have to decode it. Um, But there are revealed things that belong to man. And God does not hold us accountable to understand what is still secret to him. He holds us accountable to understand what he has revealed. And notice the extent to which God expected understanding of Israel. But the revealed things belong to us, Moses says, and to our sons forever. To what extent do they belong to us? What does he say? So that what? We may observe all the words. How many of them? All the words of the law. So the revealed things of the law that God gave through Moses were so clear that they could be what? Not just understood, but what? Obeyed. Obeyed. That's how clear the meaning was. That he revealed. That doesn't mean every page of scripture is a piece of cake, right? Um, that no efforts needed. Peter assured his readers that Paul's words were difficult to understand at times, right? Second Peter chapter three verses fifteen and sixteen. Nick, did you have a question? Yeah. When Jesus spoke the parable, he yeah. spoke to uh, a mixed audience. Some being his disciples, some being uh, Pharisees and religious leaders. Yeah. Is it true that he, like, his message was the same, it was one meaning, but he, his desire was that one group didn't understand, one group did. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, The implication of what he wanted from his one set of words had multiple things to accomplish from one set of words, from the one meaning. He would do a work in some of them that they would understand what he's doing and he would leave the other ones to themselves and even harden them that they wouldn't understand the one meaning. That doesn't mean there were two meanings. There's one meaning that was going to accomplish two different effects. We're going to talk about that even in application, but that's that's a good illustration to bring up and a good distinction to be able to make. There's not two meanings. There's two agendas with the one meaning. Okay? So when we read and study uh, God's Word, guys, we read to expect to discover one 
coherent message after another, after another, after another, from one passage to another, even though it may take some study and some patience and some careful thought. So again, we expect to discover one meaning in each text, not several meanings in each text. That's exactly what we expect from others when we talk. Get my one meaning. Don't come up with three. There's only one. We count on that, and we enjoy that basic understanding of language. And above all, we should extend that same courtesy to God in his words. So there are not two different legitimate interpretations of your words, of your one set of words. And the same is true for God in his word. Okay? The Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood. That's number two. So discipline yourself to expect that. See, I'm going to rein myself in and I'm going to set a, a parameter for myself that keeps me right there. I'm looking for one meaning. Okay? Number three. When you're studying, when you read, hold fast to the normal use of words and language. Normal use of words and language. Uh, language all of a sudden doesn't have funny rules when you get to the Bible. It's very normal. Okay? We read and we study the Bible following the practices that we consider normal for any important document. Uh, let me give you an example of, a, of maybe a silly one. Um, a husband comes home from work and finds a note on the counter letting him know that the light in the hallway is out. When he reads that note, he does not conclude that spiritual darkness is welling up in his home. Right? That's not normal. That's not, true, though. It might be true, but <laughs> it might be true, but that is not what was that was not what was meant in the words, right? Um, rather, the husband reads the note normally and puts a new bulb in the hallway. That's the normal interpretation of the note that was intended. It's the normal meaning, and we have to read our Bibles in the same way. Um, the, the practice, this practice has a, has a fancy name. It's called literal grammatical historical method of interpreting. Uh, the, the, the easier way to think of that is just language works normally. Uh, I've got to pay attention to the words. I've got to pay attention to grammar. I've got to pay attention to the history or the context. Um, that's just what we do normally anyway in every conversation. Okay, I pay attention to the words. I listen to how you constructed your sentence. And I... I'm in a context with you. I'm in a history with you. Um, that's just what we do. So normal reading or interpretation means statements are assumed to be literal unless it is evident that the author was using a figure of speech. And listen, even the use of metaphors is normal for, normal for language. We don't all of a sudden, when somebody goes into a metaphor, go, whoa, whoa, you turned my world of communication upside down. I wasn't expecting that. Jesus can easily say, I am the door. And we not freak out. And go, wait a minute, I, I thought he was human because now he's saying he's wood and he's got, he hangs on hinges. We don't do that. We, we get that because language isn't even normal in its use and um, has placed a normal spot for metaphor. It's not confusing. Um, even when interpreting figures of speech, like when Jesus says he's a door, it's a good idea to start with, okay, well, what is, what is an actual door, and what does it do? Um, it's an entrance. 
Um, what purpose does it serve? So then what was Jesus trying to communicate by suggesting his metaphoric resemblance of a door? You see, the literal or the normal use of an actual door actually guides the meaning of the figure of speech. Jesus is the entrance. He's the gateway to eternal life. Um, so it's also important to understand that um, this is true. Guys, this is very true. We've got to watch this. The author and the context get to determine the meaning of any and all metaphors or figures of speech. The reader does not get to determine what the metaphor is. If you go metaphoric in your conversation that you're having with somebody, you do not want the reader to determine what, where the metaphor is. You get to determine where the metaphor is with your words. And when they're doing that to you, you don't get to determine where the metaphor is with them. They get to tell you where it is. So the controlling line of authority for the meaning is always in the words on the page, in the context that the author spoke from. Hearers don't get to decide when you're being figurative in speech. You get to decide when you're being figurative in speech, and we just want to give God the same courtesy. He gets to decide when he is. There will be a trigger in the text itself that will make it clear that he's speaking with a figure of speech. Okay, So again, now what you're doing is you're disciplining yourself. I'm going to hold fast to the normal use of words. I'm not going to run off and start doing crazy things with, that are not normal with language. Now that my Bible's open, I'm going to control myself. Number four, when you're studying, read the passage or read the book repeatedly to make observations. Now, what I'm going to do here first, I'm going to give you um, an illustration about that's going to help us think about reading. Okay, um, there are different ways to read your Bible, um, different styles of reading, ways in which you can read the Bible. Let me give you an illustration though first. Let's say you find out that you just inherited um, a large ranch in Montana, and you want to go see it. Um, how might, what might be some ways that you would want to see that property? Well, let me give you like two maybe seemingly kind of opposite at different ends of the spectrum. One, you could um, get on a horse or in a four-wheel and, and you could just start walking, driving, riding through it and seeing it. And as you're driving and, you know, making your way across, you see, oh, there's a, there's actually like a, an outcropping of trees over there and I want to go see that. Oh, I didn't know that there's, there's a creek that runs right by that and um, I want to actually get in those trees and I want to walk and I want to look at specific trees. I want to see that and th that would be one way to see the property. Another way would be to get in a plane and fly over the whole thing and get a big picture of what's going on. Um, so now hold on to that for a moment and let's think about um, when you're studying the Bible. Um, on the, in your notes there, there's a whole list of set of questions. Those questions are there, those kinds of questions serve to accomplish two very different things when you're reading or when you're studying. Some of those questions lie kind of at the macro level, okay? The whole level, the whole Bible level, or the whole book level, or the whole paragraph level. And some of those questions are down in the micro level, very specific um, to what some what's going on in a in a text. And so this is where you're gonna where the bulk of your time is going to be spent in reading and studying carefully. It's 
at those two kinds of levels. Um, so let me just point out some things to you in some of these questions. That You can see there's some space. They're, they're kind of divided up. That first section, those, those kinds of questions are designed to transplant yourself back into the author's setting. Um, what do you know about the author? What do you know about the audience? What do you know about the setting that was going on? Don't you, don't you like it, men, when um, your hearer tries to get into your shoes and understand where you're coming from as you're communicating? We like that, right? That's a courtesy, and that shows us that they're listening well, trying to understand what we're saying. We like it when somebody tries to get in our shoes. That's what we want to do with God in his word. We want to try to get into the shoes of the ones of the human author. Um, the next set of questions are that large bulk one uh, is there is about the actual words, the actual statements themselves. Um, like read, one of the best things you can do is read the passage in several other versions. Have the New American Standard open next to the English Standard Version, next to the NIV, next to the New King James Version, next to um, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is now just the Christian Standard Bible. Have them all open and you're looking at your one verse and it says, he saved us not on the basis of deeds. He saved us not on the basis of works. He saved, um, not on the basis of works, he saved us. And you just start comparing on where are they different? Um, these are the kind, you're trying to get to the actual statements themselves. Um, what's the key word in the passage? Is there a key word in the passage? Who gets to determine what a key word is in the passage? If you're communicating to your wife and you're using a key word, who gets to determine what the key word is? Does she? No, you do. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. She gets to determine everything. That's right. <laughs> I'm just a slave. I'm just a servant. That's right. Now, key words are determined by the author again, right? So... The next set of uh, words there, uh, questions there are, have you asked bigger questions like, why is this passage here? Have you ever done that? Have you ever been reading and going, now why is that here right now? That's a good question to ask. What is, not only what does this passage mean, but what is this passage doing here? That's an interesting question to think through. Um, let me give an example uh, in regards to that at the chapter level. In Acts 10 and 11, um, you have two chapters devoted to Peter being worked on by God to go to a Gentile with the gospel, Cornelius. It happens in Acts chapter 10, and then the whole thing gets retold over again when he has to explain to his brothers back in Jerusalem what he did. Okay, So it was so important in Luke's mind, under God's um, Spirit's control, that not only would he just tell the story of what happened, but he would tell it again through the retelling it when Peter retold it. Is that important? The gospel going to the Gentiles, is that important? That's chapters 10 and 11. Skip chapter 12 for a moment. Go to chapter 13. Do you know what starts in Acts chapter 13? Paul's first missionary journey to the Gentile world. So Acts 10 and 11, Peter, the church in Jerusalem, um, realizing, oh my goodness, uh, two chapters devoted, the gospel needs to go to the, the Gentiles. Chapter 13, the gospel goes to the Gentiles through Paul. What, what happens in Acts chapter 12? This is that little, seems like a little diversion, but it's a very interesting one, 
where Herod puts James, the brother of John, to death with a sword, and he imprisons Peter, and he's going to do the same thing the next morning. But an angel goes in and wakes Peter up and gets him out, and he goes back to the house where they're all praying for Peter and all of that. And then later, um, that king, King Herod, is up north talking to some people who are upset with him. He's in a, he's in a big arena. He's, uh, Josephus, the historian, tells us what he was wearing was like, it looked like aluminum foil almost. He had this silver garment on, and the sun was coming off of it in, in the crowd, and then the people were yelling, the voice of a god and not a man, and a worm ate him and he died. Why is that there? Gospel's got to go to the Gentiles. Gospel's got to go to the Gentiles. A Gentile king kills one of those guys and is going to kill the next one. Why is that passage there? You can't stop the gospel. The kings are going to get in the way. They're going to try to stop this thing. They're even going to kill some of you, but you can't stop the gospel. You see, there's bigger questions you need to be asking yourself about why is that passage here? What is that passage doing? Things like that. And then the last little section there on those questions is just remind yourself again when you're done that you're a worshiper. Now, let me go back to the illustration where you inherited a ranch in Montana. Uh, you can either walk through it and you can look at trees individually and bark and a creek. You can be like right there or you can fly over the top. Now, which one of those is the right way to look at the property? That's a dumb question, isn't it? You don't want to, those things are not in opposition to each other. So if you can read your Bible in a way where you're going to say, I'm not going to look at anything else today but this verse. And I'm going to read that verse and I'm going to look at those words as many different ways from Sunday as I can. Um, that's one way. Another way would say, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read that chapter I'm going to read that book that that verse is in um, five times this week. I'm going to have to read it a lot. I'm going to have to cover a lot of ground. I can't slow down. I've got to keep reading. Just like when you're flying over and you're like, I'm, I can't spend any time looking at that anymore. It's out of view. What's next? And that thing, um, those two things, are one is not right and the other is not wrong. And what I have found um, over the years of doing this when we get to build, let me just give you some history of why I'm taking as much time here on this. Um, you get into build and you're encouraged, um, to, if you've never read through the whole Bible in a year, we encourage you to read through the Bible in a year. And for some of you, your thought is, but what I like to do is I just, I like to be, I just like to dig down really deep on that verse and I just like to move really slow. And when you hear somebody say to you, read the Bible in a year, um, it feels like they're asking you to sin because you feel that strongly about reading slowly and carefully. And then in the same room of guys, there's another guy sitting there who what he loves to do is just read great big sections of scripture. He likes to read all of the gospel of John in one sitting. and He, he just loves it. And he gets encouraged at build to, I want you to, to maybe just slow down a little bit. And I want you just to, to dig in a little bit more so that you can see what's getting there. And he can feel like he's being asked to, to violate his conscience in a way because he loves the way he reads. Um, and what you need to know is what, which kind of man are you? And realize that one is not in opposition to the other. They're both designed to do very different things in your studying of the Word of God. And you need both of them. 
Um, and so you might, if, you, if you're inclined more one way, you might want to try to stretch yourself a little bit with the other kind of reading, okay? Does that make sense? Do reading at different levels. Slow down. You might need to be a guy who needs to slow down. You might need to be a guy who needs to speed up and read more. So, number five, moving right along. When you read, when you study, understand the relationship between interpretation and application. Understand the relationship between interpretation and application. There's an important relationship between those two things. Uh, they are like two back-to-back runners on a relay team. Interpretation of a passage runs its first leg across the pages of Scripture, and then it hands off its interpretation or its baton into the hands of application, so then application can run its leg into your life. Interpretation of a Scripture is not the application of the Scripture, and application is not interpretation. Though both of those two things need each other greatly, they both must take their proper space and role in their relationship. The interpretation of a passage must be established first so as to understand the meaning of the text and then application can be made. Here's the the illustration in my mind. Think of a low three-foot cinder block wall. Okay? Four-foot cinder block wall. Um, on one side of the wall is interpretation and on the other side of the wall is application you can only be on one side at a time you can't be on both sides at the same time but you can see the other one from where you're standing right so if I'm on the interpretation side I, I can see that application is over there or if I'm applying I can see that meaning and interpretation is back over there, but I can't be in both at the same time. You need to be making, you need to be thinking of it that way um, as you study your Bible. Um, interpretation is the understanding of the truth intention of the author. So when you're trying to interpret a passage, you're trying to get to meaning. What is the truth that was intended for me? Okay. Um, what is the author's meaning? And um, that meaning exists regardless of me. Let me ask you this question. I want you to think real carefully. That note on the counter that was written for the man from his wife about the light is out in the hallway. Here's the question. Be careful. When did that note have meaning? When When you read it or when she wrote it? When she wrote it. It had meaning before you ever even knew it existed. Okay. But the context was they haven't spoken in six months. <laughs> okay. So. Maybe now so. it might have additional meaning, right? There may be more, yeah, there may be more meaning involved in that. But, yeah, but the point is it doesn't have meaning or significance all of a sudden when I read it. It had meaning in it because words were put together and words convey meaning. And the author had a meaning to convey and did. I just didn't know it yet. When did the Bible have meaning? Long before you ever read it. And when you die and are gone, it'll still have meaning. Okay? So on one side, i got to get to the truth intention that's there. Application on the other side is now, 
How should my thinking and how should my living change in light of that meaning? Okay? Application is the various ways that one may need to live in light of that meaning in that passage. Um, let me give you an example. This is a silly example, uh, but it, it, it's, it, it's helpful. And uh, part of it is that word meaning is a tricky word. We use it in some really um, interesting ways. We use it in some irresponsible ways. Let me give you an example. Jesus in John 15, 12 says to his disciples, love one another. Now imagine a wife studying that. She might think, that means I need to love my husband better. But is that what Jesus means in John 15, 12 as he speaks to his disciples? Or has what she has done in that situation mixed together how she believes her life must change and what Jesus means? Do you understand? If that is the meaning, the one intended meaning that Jesus had, are all other women supposed to love her husband better too? What is Jesus' truth intention in John 15, 12, when he says, love one another? Actually, what's happening, what she says, and I tried to emphasize it, where she says, this means I need to love my husband better. That's actually a careless use of the word means. What she should have said is, I need to apply this in such a way that I love my husband better. Um, and when we misspeak this way and we use the word means in the wrong way, um, we open the door for even more wrong statements. Now imagine that woman sitting in a Bible study together and they're studying John 15, 12, and she says, that means I need to love my husband better. And another woman goes, I didn't think about that. And so the next woman says, well, that's what that passage means to you. But what it means to me is, and all of a sudden, do we have multiple meanings in one set of words? Love one another. You see, the problem is not that it's hard to get at the meaning of what Jesus says. The problem is we're using the word means the wrong way, right? And now a whole avalanche of wrong thinking comes, and everything that is really dangerous and sad about Bible study that Christians do comes out at times like that. So again, remember, when was the last time you communicated two different sets of meanings from one set of words? Did Jesus do that in John 15, 12? The answer is no. Jesus is the only one who means anything in John 15, 12. Um, because he is the author of those words, and meaning resides with the author and his words. Meaning does not reside with the reader. Um, it is the reader's responsibility to interpret carefully so as to grasp Jesus' one meaning in the text. And then the reader must carefully think of the implications and applications that are necessary in life. Again, think of a relay runner, two relay runners. They're not running at the same time, holding the baton at the same time. One is running, and when he hands off the baton, he's done. And the next one then goes, you need to think of interpretation. I have to get at the meaning. And once I got the meaning, then I can what? 
now I can, and only now can I think about how my life must change. Um, let me give you another example. Let's go to Romans 12. So that you can think about this. Here's a way that you can control yourself to get to the bottom of, of, uh, of what a passage means. I'm thinking differently about application versus interpretation. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And this is what I want to focus on. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may prove what the will of God is, um, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Um, do not be conformed to this world. Let me give you the wrong... Oh, here's, what, here's your way you can control yourself. If you want to get to the bottom of what that means, um, every time before, as you're looking at those words, just write out the words before it, Paul said. Paul said to the Romans, who are believers, do not be conformed to this world. Paul said that. If you take that little phrase, Paul said, or Moses said, or Jesus said, you will rein yourself in immediately to tie yourself to the context and to the author if you do that. Let me give you the wrong approach. Um, a guy reads Romans 12 to do not be conformed to this world and he goes, oh, that means I need to um, stop watching cable. I need, to stop, I need to stop watching cable. In fact, you know what? I, I think it, all cable's evil and you can't be a Christian and watch cable. Um, that's what Paul means, you know. That's that's what Romans twelve two says, you know. Don't be conformed to this world. Um, we we chuckle, um, but this stuff happens. Christians do this stuff. Um, now, none of us here have ever done that kind of stuff, but Christians do this stuff. Um, do you see how that was just one mixed, swirled, fusing of meaning? An application of how that, that person, that's what Paul means, and this is how my life must change. It was just all one gobbledygook mixed up mess. Think of relay runners. Think of a fence with a, or a yard with a, a, a center block wall, four foot high. You, you, it's one or the other. You're in one or the other. You've got to be in one first and then the other. The right approach would be, Paul said to the Roman believers that they should not follow the same patterns of thinking and living that believers, unbelievers do. Application, how should my life change in, re in, in, in response to that meaning? Well, you know what? Something that influences the way that, influences me to think worldly thoughts and think the way that the world thinks is, is I just, I'm watching way too much TV. I'm just watching way too much TV. So that's the implication of it on my life. That's the application of it in my life. My life needs to change. And men are sitting in a Bible study together, and another guy hears that, and he goes, oh, yeah, and the way that my life wants to change, needs to change, is um, what happens is, for me, it's music. When I'm listening to my, my music that I do, I find that my, my mind is being conformed to the world uh, pattern of thinking. And so um, I'm going to be much more discriminating in what I listen to music-wise. Uh, one meaning, how many different applications? As many different as there are guys sitting in the room. But one meaning, one meaning 
multiple legitimate applications. Okay, does that make sense? So notice two crisp, clear, distinct steps. First, interpretation. What did Paul mean? Then application. How should my life change? What Paul said and what Paul meant for the Romans is related to, but it's not equal to how you are to act based on what he said. Because Paul didn't say anything about the way that music might make you think worldly or the way that TV might make you think worldly. He just said, don't be conformed to this world. Um, so one interpretation can lead to many legitimate applications. Just make sure you actually find what first? The one meaning of the text before you start multiplying uh, your applications. Okay? That's how you can control yourself. Number six, we're, let's build on that. Number six is building on that. Um, would anybody be interested in going out and hitting the AC down? It feels like it's getting warm in here again, if you don't mind. Thank you. Number six, linger longer for better life impact from the Bible. This is going to expand on number five, uh, the relationship between interpretation and application. Um, serious Bible readers and studiers are after something really important and good. Um, they're looking for their life to change when they have their Bibles open. They want their life to be impacted uh, from Scripture. They want encouragement from the Bible that will speak to them in whatever situation in life they're currently facing. That's a good thing to want. Nothing about that is bad. Certainly God intends, obviously, his word to impact our hearts as we walk through life's daily events. But how we get there is everything. How you get there is everything um, to those necessary applications and implications. Listen to this, guys. This is really important. Think about this. You shouldn't get to life-impacting applications by doing violence to God's original intent in the passage you're studying. If you get to a life change and you assaulted the meaning of that text, that's not good. Okay? This is especially where we need self-control as we read and as we interpret Scripture with the hope of getting to a meaningful application. It's possible to get into such a rush to experience a life-changing impact from the words that we're reading that we actually just race through the words and the phrases and the clauses and we're just hastily looking for whatever makes us feel good. Okay, now that's it. That's, that's how my life's going to change. We can actually do that. We get too much in a hurry. And the problem is, is we can then arrive at a feel-good impact, and we got there in an illegitimate way with God's Word. Um, it's, it's possible for hurried readers, even desperate readers who are desperate to, to change, to walk away from their Bible reading feeling really good about the life impact they feel from what they've just read, but God not be satisfied with how his words were handled. That happens in Christianity. Christians walk away from the Bible feeling good about how their life's going to change, and God's going, what did you just do to my words? So what's the solution? The solution is to discipline yourself, train yourself. Discipline yourself to want this first Okay, guys, to want this first. Discipline yourself to want first the true meaning of the text. 
I need to know what this passage means. Train yourself to want that before you want your life to change. It's okay to want that. I'm not saying instead of your life changing, but you must want that before you want life change because your life truly cannot change until what? You know what the text means. So discipline yourself to want and desire the true meaning first. And discipline yourself to not just want some kind of an emotional feel-good moment that you're going to walk away with that how your life's going to change. Um, that isn't connected to the original intent that God has in the text. And so what that's going to mean is you're going to need to linger longer in each text you're in. Now, doing so may actually delay you getting that um, that scratch for that application itch you feel, but when you get scratched, you're going to feel far more satisfied. Okay? Now, here, here's what I want us to do. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. Please turn there. <laughs> That's right. I said Jeremiah 29, 11. That one's never misunderstood. Never. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11. This verse has become obviously a favorite soundbite for Christian memes, calendars, uh, screensavers. Uh, on the surface, modern day readers hardly have to do anything to get a good feeling about these words. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't have to work at all for these words to feel good to me. I don't have to, I don't have to linger there very long at all to get a, a good feeling. Verse 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. That feels good. That feels really good for me. Um, now, let's do the important thing. Let's linger a little longer, shall we? And back up to verse 1. Now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the el exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so this is actually a letter that Jeremiah wrote. Um, not to me. I get, a, I get a look in on it. He didn't write it to me. Now, God's Bible is for me. So I'm connected indirectly, but I'm not the direct recipient of this letter in this way that Jeremiah initially intended. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and the Jeru in Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. So when they deported Israel, they took the best first and they left the poorest in the land. The letter was sent by the hand of um, Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Jeremiah is claiming that this is God speaking to them. Now look at verse 5. Imperative. Build houses and live in them. And plant gardens and eat their produce. Now here's my question. Why do we not feel as good about verse 5 as we do verse 11? It's the same letter. 
How many of you are building houses and planting gardens and eating vegetables because you just love Jeremiah 29.5? <laughs> so what makes 29.11 more special than verse 5? Look at verse 6. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Anybody out there obeying this? Um, give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. So wait a minute, this is God. Think about it. The, the Jews are now living in Babylon. They've been exiled. And now what's happening is, is Yahweh is writing a letter to them through Jeremiah saying, um, build houses in that city and plant gardens and eat the food that you're going to grow there. In fact, um, marry off your kids to one another there. Get married. What is he telling them? You're going to be there for a while. Look, to do all this, verse 7, seek the welfare. Oh, there's that word. That's where it comes up the first time. It's in verse 11 too. Plans for welfare. I have plans for welfare for you. Here it is, actually. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf. For in the city's welfare... You exiled Jews are going to have welfare. You're going to have good. So be peaceable, people. Want the best for that city because I'm going to have you there for a while. I'd rather you live in a city where things there's good welfare going on. There's peaceableness going on rather than to uh, all kinds of uh, uh, rioting going on. For, for, verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Uh, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So, so now understand this. They've been exiled and there's false prophets saying Yahweh's going to send us back quick. What are you doing getting married? We're going home. What are you doing planting a garden? We're going home. False prophets are saying, what are you doing building a house? Yahweh's going to take us back soon. And what is Yahweh telling them? Don't listen to that. I determined it was going to be 70 years that you're going to be there. Build a house. Plant a garden. Get married. Have kids. Seek the welfare of that city because I've got plans for you, Israel. I made promises to you. And I'm going to fulfill them. And in the meantime, while you have to wait 70 years, be good citizens there. And, and want good things for that city so that when I'm done and I can bring you back, I fulfill everything for you. That's 2911. And that's not insignificant. That's huge. But if I take it and I just run into my own life and I just feel so good in 2018 about 2911, and I'm using it in ways to, to comfort me and to make me think, th I, I missed... I missed and I did violence to God's word. I should not feel good about that. The goal is not, God's goal for you guys is not that you feel good regardless of what you do to his word. His goal is that your life change on the basis of what his word means. Does that make sense? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's another one. What did Paul mean? What did it mean? 
I think it's funny when you have two Christian teams playing each other, and that's above the door on each locker room as they head up. <laughs> I can do all things. God's in a conundrum there, isn't he? What's he going to do? So when you linger longer in a passage, guys, you, you get to clarify this. Quickly skimming a passage like Jeremiah 29, 11, because we just we want to arrive at a feel-good, life-changing impact that actually positions us to miss the intended meaning entirely. Um, and legitimate applications, guys, listen, legitimate applications can never exist apart from the true meaning of the text. Okay, they, they just don't exist apart from the true meaning of the text. What if God primarily, listen to this, guys. What if God primarily wants you, as you read those important words to Israel in exile long ago, what if he primarily just wants you to marvel in worship at his faithfulness? And it's really not about you. It's just about him. And it's about the way that he loved a rebellious people who were not worthy of it. What if, what if that's what that passage is there for? That you would just stop and say, what a great God. What a great God. That, that's my God with his kids that he had a long time ago before me. This was true before I ever came on the scene. This is my God. In other words, let me ask you this, guys. Let's ask it this way. Do these words only take on life impact when you're written into the story? Or do they have life impact whether you're in the story or not? We don't do that with any other historical writing. If you're reading something on the, um, the invasion of Normandy in World War II, does that story only have impact if somehow you write yourself onto the beach? We don't do that with other things. We don't need to. But we do that with God's Word. Yeah, Robert. Uh, just, just for fun, I thought I'd mention the worst one I've ever seen. It was a, a scripture of the day calendar, a little yeah. desktop tear away every day. Mm-hmm. And it was Matthew 4, 9. And he said to him, all of these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Oh. No. Who said those words? Said me. <laughs> yeah. Matthew 4, 9. i got to write that down. That's, really That's terrifying. Oh, my goodness. If you don't know the context, Yeah, it would make you feel really good. That's right. And, and, we, and we chuckle. But we know what? We, we, as Christians, do this kind of thing. And we need to be really careful. So, again, self-control and discipline is what is needed. So discipline yourself to want the original author's meaning. Train yourself to want that more than you want a quick, feel-good experience that's loosely connected to God's words. Listen, guys, your life must change. Your life must be impacted by God's word. That's, That's one of the reasons why he wrote it. He primarily wrote it just to reveal himself, and he's glorified in just that, that he revealed himself. But he also has an intent that your life must change. But how you get there is everything. That's the point. The point is, look, you need to back off on application. You need to back off on life change. That's not very important. Do not hear me say that. That's not what I'm saying. What, what, what am I saying? 
you have to have the meaning of the text if you want real life change, legitimate life change. Do you get that? So it's going to take just lingering a little bit longer. Okay, um, one, I think we can maybe do one. No, we can't. We're done. Are we done? 9.08. What time do we finish? We're getting there, yeah. Do we finish at 9 or do we finish at 9.15? What do we do? Oh, we're finishing this year. We're finishing this year? Let me just cover, um, let me see which one I want to cover. I want to give you one more. Oh, man. This is so hard. I never have enough time for this lesson. I need a year for this lesson. All right, words. Do you want to talk about word study, or do you um, like how to how you have to be careful with a word's meaning? Do you want to talk about cross-referencing? That's number nine. Word study is number eight. Or do you want to let's skip number seven because Graham. All right, cross-referencing it is. We're going to go to number nine. Okay, there's an important balance when reading scripture. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 30 different human authors, and yet the Bible agrees with itself amazingly so, or not so amazingly so, uh, so when you consider God is the divine author. Um, because God um, breathed out his scripture, he knows everything, and he never lies, and the Bible never contradicts itself. Um, so just because the one author of scripture never disagrees with himself in one passage to the next doesn't mean that every single passage has to say the exact same thing or have the exact same meaning. So the point is, if you're reading this passage here, the one next to it, once you find out what that meaning is, this next passage might not say the exact same thing as that one. So don't try to make this one say that one. Don't try to use this one necessarily to confirm that that one says everything that this one means. Now, a lot of times you're going to be able to do that, but you have to be careful when you cross-reference or when you use other ones. Um, in, in other words, unity of your Bible is a little more complex than that. Think of it this way. The unity of the Bible doesn't demand each passage to have exactly the same meaning. That You understand that because the unity of your human body doesn't demand that every one, single one of your members be an ear or an eye or a hand. You need there to be variety, and there's no doubt that there's one body, even though there's eyes and ears and hands and nose and stuff like that. It doesn't demand that everything is a hand for it to be a unified body, body right? Does that make sense? Each passage, and the same thing is true in your Bible. This is why you need to be careful when you cross-reference in your reading. Each passage needs to speak for itself first, and then it needs to be lined up next to the other passages. And you might need to recognize, oh, I thought that was about a hand too, but actually I see it was about an ear. And so I don't want to use the ear to prove that that's a hand. Okay. What is the overall message that's being communicated by God in each passage? And then you put those together. So you want to compare your passages. And by the way, where do you notice this comes on the list? What number is this? It's not number one. So you're not doing this first. A lot of things that you'll find, um, watch for this. When, when, when somebody says, well, what, what did Jesus mean in John chapter 15? Watch for this in your own heart and watch for this in others around you. When they go, oh, you want to know what John 15 means? Let me tell you. Turn to Ephesians 3. 
It might be true. It might not be true. You might be using an ear to confirm a hand. Now, the hand needs to say what the hand says, and the ear needs to be what the ear means, and I'm sounding like I'm speaking foolishness here. Um, but, but it doesn't mean that you don't have a, a body. It doesn't mean you don't have unity. You need to let those passages stand on their own. This is why, um, I'll, I'll just be honest, with, for me and when I teach, if you notice, most of the time, we rarely ever leave the page that I'm on. And I, that's on purpose from my perspective. I'm not saying if a preacher turns pages or if you hear me tomorrow turning pages, all of a sudden somehow now a compromise has taken place. I'm not saying that about that. But I try to stay in the one passage and exhaust what that passage means. That's what I want to know before I turn to other pages. Um, there are all kinds of really interesting things you can do, like passages. I mean, if you are going to look in Romans 3, 4, and 5 on what Paul's teaching about justification by faith alone, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and then you go over to James chapter 2, and James is talking about justification, and you're convinced that those have to mean the same, I mean, uh oh, those, is there a contradiction in the Bible? Um, well, let James say what James is saying, and let Paul say what Paul is saying, and then we'll figure out how those two sit together as a hand and an eye in the body of the scriptures, and it'll all hold together. So, again, notice where this is happening. You want to do this later on. Linger longer in the text you're in. Discipline yourself to not turn the page, and just stay there. And if you need help, photocopy it. And then set your Bible away and just keep that one photocopied page in front of you and you can't turn the page away from that. There it is. I just got to stay there. Okay? Or put tape down or drive a nail through this side of your Bible and this side of the box. Don't do that. That'd be bad. Okay? All right. Um, you want to finish number 10. You want to come back with prayer again and you want to be a worshipful interpreter. Okay? There you have it, guys. How about I pray? And then, Scott, if you have any last words, you can... Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to be careful with it. You are good. You are kind. You revealed yourself, Lord. May we just be um, humble interpreters, careful interpreters who marvel at what you have revealed to us. Lord, and we want our lives to change. Our lives must change. We must get to that change the right way. Would you please help us? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Thanks again. Awesome here. Good job.